This is Bob Power, and I'm really happy to be talking to Luke Bailey on Fly Fidelity about how we make records. First, First I, I say, say, what, what we're going to do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know, what do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do? I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast <laughs> is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Fidelity. Bob Power is with us for over 30 years. His name has been synonymous with the sound of the second wave of hip-hop, bringing us closest to the vision and direction of some of the most envelope-pushing artists we love. As well as helping to shape a tribe called Quest Sound, his credits include the likes of De La Soul, Common, The Roots, D'Angelo, and so many others. We're joined for a fly-on-the-wall conversation to shed light on the elusive studio practice which has been necessary to making the music we love sound great. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is your Midnight Marauder program. I'm on the front of your cover. I will be enhancing your cassettes and CDs with certain facts that you may find beneficial. The average bounce meter for your Midnight Marauder program will be in the area of 95 BPM. We hope that you will find our presentation precise, bass-heavy, and just right. Thanks. So you got your come up as an engineer, mixing Stetsasonic's first album in 84, of course. Can you take me through your role as an engineer for Stetsasonic, which happens right on the end of the first wave of hip-hop? What happens to stick out most about those sessions for On Fire? Yeah. It, that's a really good question. Uh, I just have images of being with the people and working. It was a very interesting time for me because I was learning what I was doing as I was going. I'd been a working musician for you know ten or fifteen years before that, right. and um, I sort of knew what to do as a recordist and a mixer, but uh, I didn't really understand it the way that I do now by any means. So, you know, I was just learning all the time and uh, not at the expense of my clients. I made sure that I came through for them when I had to, but it was a huge, huge learning time for me. And it kind of got me into recording as problem solving. Um, At that point, uh, MIDI, sampling, drum machines, everything was incredibly primitive synchronization. Um, So for the most part, if you wanted to do something, you put somebody in front of a microphone, either with an instrument or their their voice, and you press record. Uh, If you wanted to record a drum machine, you hit play on the drum machine, you press record on the tape recorder. Um, 
synchronization was incredibly primitive and non-existent, at, you know, back then. And of course, back then, you've only recently stopped doing weddings and these bar mitzvahs. You've stopped doing TV. What would have been your most significant lessons learned in scoring for TV? And how did that experience inform this new trajectory? Um, that the goal, the common goal is much, 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 much more important than you. Um, and that was the best lesson I got working in a production environment and understanding what production is about, whether it's television or, uh, or records. Uh, yeah, that's a big lesson that, uh, I often say to people who tell me, oh, you know, I want to go work as a technician in television. The one thing I say to them, if somebody, can I curse by the way? Of course. I, if somebody notices your work, you're fucked meaning that your function and your work should be transparent in service of the product. So that, that was sort of the most important thing I brought with me, I think. And was it always easy to let go of your days as a musician for 20-something years and doing shows? Uh, sometimes, yeah. You know, I, I was very conscious of my role. It's interesting that you bring that up because... Uh, I was, you know, I had a couple of music degrees by that point and I was very conscious of my role as an engineer and not to overstep my bounds. Uh, so when people needed help musically, it wasn't my place to stand up and say, here, let me play that. Right. Um, it was my place to sit there and help them realize it in their own way rather than me stepping in so that was that was always really important to me and it it really it's about respecting your role and respecting what you're there to do which is to help those people not to do things yourself and at that point you are really familiar with jazz. You have a obsession with jazz music at this point. How much was what you already knew and studied about jazz informing these mixes for the records you were mixing with Stetsasonic? Well, because I'd always played in bands um, and because I'd done a bunch of recording before that, and but particularly my experience in bands and listening to records, I knew in my ears what something if something sounded quote unquote good, I knew what that sounded like in ears. And that was, that was my reference point was the way that classic records sounded from kind of blue to Philadelphia international. Um, if you know the Philly international catalog, most of that was a guy named Joe Tarsia. And, uh, he, I believe he owned Sigma sound in the early days in Philly and uh, if you listen, I didn't realize this till like 25 years down the line when I was like, why do I like all those records that came out of Philadelphia? They sounded so much better than records that were being made elsewhere. And I think a lot of that had to do with Joe Tarsia. So I had these models in my ear of, oh, this is what a good record sounds like. And, mm -hmm. you know, just going for it. Hip hop challenged me in ways that other kinds of music didn't. And that's with the low end. And uh, mm. it was sort of an education on the streets, kind of like playing in bands, you know, where you play in a band and the music is a little bit new to you and you quickly figure out what you need to do to make that music work as best you can. Uh, and 
hip hop was the same way for me. Uh, I knew a bunch of other kinds of music pretty well, but hip hop was really, that was sort of the end of the first, like you said, the end of the first wave of hip hop. And uh, it was a learning time for me to just absorb and say, this is not exactly like these other kinds of music, even though I was way into R&B at that point, but it was different. You know, hip hop is different than traditional R&B. I'm curious as to what your first musical epiphany was. Is there one you recall either sound-based or purely musical that pushed you to explore sound? I I don't remember exactly, but, um, you know, I'd messed around recording before the 80s, before I sort of backed into engineering, but I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was fascinated by it. Right. Uh, and I had the good fortune to, when I uh, finished college in St. Louis the first time, uh, I made an independent record at that point with a gentleman who was the first really killer engineer who was really into the stuff that I'd ever known in my life. And this was, this was the mid-70s, so it was a while back. Then uh, from 75 to 82, when I was doing TV music, I was working with these guys. You know, everything has to move really fast for television. So I was working with these engineers who were really, really good. And I was always looking, 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 listening, 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 saying, why are you doing that? Why did you pick that piece of gear? Uh, so when the opportunity presented itself for me to pro engineer on a professional level for other folks, uh, the light bulb went on in my brain saying, oh, this combines music and the tech stuff that's always fascinated you. So this is the best of both worlds that you're really interested in. Um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't that conscious, but now that I think about it, that's what happened. Well, let's talk about mixing on a professional level. You mentioned problem solving. Do you have any recollection of Ghost Stetzer Eye, which apparently was a process which included what did Mark Stetzer Sonic used for the drums in a bathroom opposite the vocal booth? How did you know about that, man? I'd read it in a book, Brian Coleman's book. Um, it's funny because I, I teach at NYU and I was just telling my students about this the other day. Um, the, the studio that I kind of came up in was a place called Calliope and it was a real nexus for the beginning of the second wave of hip hop. Uh, you know, the whole native tongues movement, everybody kind of came through that studio. Uh, but with Stetsasonic, which was slightly before then, um, the owner was a very sharp guy named Chris Irwin and the, the drum booth, uh, opened up into the control room, but it also had another door that opened into the bathroom. Uh -huh. And what they told me, they said, oh yeah, sometimes we put a microphone in the bathtub and leave the door open and it sounds like Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, who did it with the hallway apparently, like a fire stairs, you know, concrete hallway. Um, so we used to put a mic in the bathroom, leave the door open, compress the daylights out of the mic, poorly so it pumped and pumped and pumped and 
now I would never do that on a hip hop record. I don't think it's sort of part of the hip hop ethic to have that kind of sound. But at the time it was like, okay, this sounds cool. So it was very much unheard of back then and still very much is. Well, yeah, you know, that kind of pumping, super compressed room sound, almost like a bottom kind of thing. And I didn't even remember that I did it until you mentioned it. When you think about hip hop morphing in its earliest formulation, what do you think changed production wise between the first and second wave of hip hop? Technology, uh, plain and simple. Technology had more to do with the changes in recorded music as an art form than almost any other art form, except for videography. Videography wouldn't exist if it wasn't for technology. But, but if you think about the history of record making and how records have sounded over the years, all the changes in the way that records sounded were due to technology. Uh, and hip hop, particularly with sampling time, it really, the low end theory, would not have been possible without expanded sampling time of samplers. Whereas up until that point, sometimes you'd have a sample kick, a sample snare, and maybe a little snippet of a song that just, you know, one or two bars that played over and over and over again. Um, around the time of the low end theory, uh, sampling time increased so people could combine different pieces of different songs rather than just taking a one bar loop from a song. They would take the drums from one song, the keyboards from another song, the bass from another song. So the constructions um, were able to become a lot more comp complex. Right. Uh, and it's a credit to the people that made the tracks that they were able to hear this and conceptualize it. You know, you have to remember in those in the early days, um, nobody had all that gear at their own place. So DJs would play a piece of a record at their place, listen in their headphones saying, oh, it'd be cool to take the drums from this. They'd listen to another record. They'd go, oh, it'd be cool to take the bass from this. They'd listen to another record, hear the keyboards. Oh, that would work well with those things. But they never really heard it all put together until they got to the studio, which is amazing when you think about the the complexity of their conceptions and their their sense of imagination and what they were able to hear it's amazing as an artist yourself back then as a musician yourself back then what was your thoughts on sampling <sighs> i had to ask you know on on one hand i feel like if something if somebody made something themselves through any combination of blood, sweat, tears, love, and money, you have no right to take it without asking them. Uh, on the other side of the coin, we're in a digital world. And there's a one mode of thought that says, if you make something into a digital form, you are saying it's there for the world to take if they want it. So I think both are true. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, there's an interview that I did years ago. Um, I will not name the other entity that did it out of respect for you guys, but uh, someone from the audience, it was in Europe, and someone from the audience from a, a somewhat socialist country, I believe, said to me, you know, well, what right do you have to say this is mine and control what I do with that? And I'm like, look, if a guy's 
has oranges in a cart on the street. Right. If you go by and just grab an orange and say, hey, I'm sorry, man, the oranges are sitting out there, so I'm taking it. He, you know, he's got a family to feed. So you need to ask him or pay him. Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you could find the abstract, listening to hip hop. My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, well, daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael. It's all expected. Things are for the looking. If you got the money, quest is for the booking. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truckload of black gold. Listen to the rhyme to get a mental picture of the black man black woman picture why do i say that because i gotta speak the truth man doing what we feel for the music is the proof and planet on the ground the act is so together gonna fight strong you need leverage to sever you mentioned the low end theory of course just earlier what kind of conversations were you having as a creative associate going into the low end theory was there a pre-stated sonic mission you were aware of um the name itself told me a lot and my relationship with Tip had, uh, and Ali had grown since the first album. So I was coming to a better understanding of how important the bottom was in those records mm. and how that was the great mountain that we had to climb, how to have a huge bottom. And my thing was, okay, we got to have a, if, we can have a huge bottom, but I got to make sure you can hear everything else at the same time. That's the hard part. Everybody had their own ear, of course, making that album. Everybody had their own vision. What would have been free strategies that helped you maintain your perspective and sense of fluidity when you were mixing those records? Tip and Ali standing over my shoulder saying, more kick, more snare, more kick, more snare. I'm, I'm laughing on the inside as I say that, but that's what it was. <laughs> Could you remember what songs specifically they were for? No, no. It was just the development of our relationship at that point. You know, right. turn the drums up, turn the drums up. Well, I can't hear the vocal. Give me give me 10 minutes. Let me make it so we can hear the vocal too. So that, you know, it's still my, uh, my holy grail when I'm mixing my true north, my north star, is can we hear everything? Uh, you have to pay attention to genre and and shape the overall tonal characteristics to fit the genre and fit what the uh, what the artist conceptualized to have happen with the record. But at the same time, you got to hear everything. Yeah. I, I I labor under the assumption, and I've been wrong a lot, that if somebody puts something on a track, that they intended you to be able to hear it. I've changed, you know, D'Angelo actually changed my view of what it means to be a producer. Um, and Erica Badu also, uh, and I didn't realize this till much later, but as a producer, I kind of feel like if an artist says, I want to try this, I want to do this, and you've done it a hundred times and it's never worked out. It's not your job to say, Hey, I've done this a hundred times and it's never worked and it's not going to work. It's your job to say, I've tried this a lot. Give me a minute and let me figure out a way to make it work. Mm. So you credit some of your earliest lessons as a producer in a studio to Erica and D'Angelo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Can you speak more specifically to those lessons and experiences? Well, it's exactly what I said. It's it's you're there to help realize the artist's vision. And at the time, I didn't. 
I guess I did know that, but I know it so much better now that, and those records are great because of them, not because of me. Uh, those records are great because they had a great vision and I was smart enough at most of the time to get the fuck out of the way or just, um, just, uh, I use it. What's the word I use? Um, to enable their vision, to enable and support their vision. Uh, cause an artist doesn't want to have to think about, remember we were recording to tape at that point and we had 22 tracks to deal with. Not everybody thinks it's 24 tracks. It was 22 tracks because you needed one track for your time code to synchronize the automated mixing desk. And then you couldn't record anything on the track next to that time code signal because there was bleed from the adjacent track. So how to realize their complicated visions in a sonically robust and muscular and beautiful way with 22 tracks. Right. We're talking about a vision that you respect ultimately, and it's a vision that comes through in these records you've mixed. Absolutely. Respect is totally like super, super important. And again, it goes back for me, it goes back to knowing what your function is uh, at that point. Your function is as a producer and for me as a mixer still is to help people realize their vision. And of course, I bring my own thing to the table, but I got to keep telling myself that first one over and over again. And it's a very humanist approach, I feel, you have when you're working with these artists. Do you think the psychological aspect of your work is overlooked? You have a very humanist approach that leans into being as much psychological as it's technological. You know, humanism, I would hope, governs everything that I do. People ask me what my religion or what my politics. But when people ask me, you know, what my politics are, I say my politics are humanist. And that's how I try to operate. Hmm. Going back to production, what was your role as a co-producer on Dela's Balloon Mind State, which, of course, was their last album produced by Prince Paul and featured a lot more live instrumentation than anything they did prior? No one was so long ago. In summary, what was your most instructive takeaway from that collaborative experience specifically? I don't think I was credited. Was I credited as co-producer on that? Well... Here's the thing. You're credited, you're credited on your website as well as everywhere else online, but I don't see the credits in a liner note, so I wondered if you could... I didn't intend to be credited as co-producer on that. I helped a lot. I brought in certain musicians when they said, we need a jazz flute player, I knew who to call, and I brought them in. But I don't believe that that was my role on that record. You know, I was there to help. So your role is to help, you're bringing in artists, you're bringing in musicians. Can you speak to any tracks specifically that you had a hand in um, making? Um, well, all of them as an engineer. Right. Uh, and then there was times where they said, we need a really good jazz bass player. And I, who did I call? I'm, I'm spacing. I'll think about this in a minute. I'll remember who it was. But a real... Uh, you know, New York stalwart of the New York jazz scene, uh, Buster Williams. Ah. Um, and uh, they had another for the song Patty Duke, which is really overlooked. It's a really great track. Um, they needed a jazz flute player, and I called a guy named Frank West. And I don't know if you know him, but he's an alto sax and flute player who was a stalwart in the Count Basie band for years. I knew 
I mean, he's known as an alto sax player, but he's a great flute player because there were some records he made on flute uh, with guitar players that I studied when I was coming up learning guitar. So I listened to, uh, uh, I believe the um, album is called West Side or something like that. His name is Frank West. And he was playing jazz flute, and I just knew that he was killer, but a lot of people didn't know that. So uh, I found him and called him up. And that was one of the wonderful things about moving back to New York in 82 was I realized that if you had double scale, you know, double musicians union scale for the day, you could kind of call anybody, you know, all these people who I'd seen their names on records for years that I idolized. I got to call on the phone and say, listen, we got a recording session. It's blah, 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 blah. And we have double scale for you. And they're like, cool. When is it? You know, uh, Lou Soloff was another one, uh, a really incredible uh, New York studio trumpet player and a jazz player who was one of the original members of Blood, Sweat and Tears. And when I started doing jingles, I got to be able to call Lou and I used him on a bunch of records as well. It was thrilling. How long did it take to mix those records specifically, knowing that, you know, you had such a respect for these artists? Because I was learning what I was doing, man, it was slow. Um, but also, I believe that uh, Balloon Mind State, we still weren't using automation on the desk at that point. I don't remember exactly, but for the most part, I think that we were not mixing automated. So uh, you couldn't come back and finish up. You know, you'd have to sit down and in one session mix the song for the most part. Uh, yeah. So it was long though. It was definitely long, but it was necessary. Uh, well, for me, it was necessary. Exactly. Now I have a completely different, I have like x-ray eyes now cause I've been doing it so long, you know, back then I was just looking at a wall that needed to be painted. Now I kind of look through and I see the frame of the house and you know, the nails and the screws. This was very much a period of growth for you, working on these Native Tons projects. Do you have any recollections of mixing JBs with The Remedy, which at the time featured some of the most experimental hip-hop back then? Can you remember it being as instinctual as a process as mixing other Native Turn projects, or did you take naturally to it? Uh, I don't remember that much about that record. I was working so much at the time that that... You know, I remember the guys, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I, I have visions of talking to and working with the guys, but I was working so much at that point, it's kind of a blur. And understandably, it was so many, I think it was four native turn projects you were working on in that year, including Midnight Marauders, of course. What about Midnight Marauders? What was your experience? Same same thing, man. It, it was... It was kind of, you know, a blur. Uh, I do remember Tip coming up to me at the beginning of the record. And whereas on the low end theory, I had spent a lot of time cleaning up the samples so we could hear the intricacy of the parts because it was a very complex construction that the guys did with samples. Mm. And at the, at the time, I felt that if there was a sample that we were going to, that the important thing was the electric piano, I wanted to mess with it as much as I could. So we heard the electric piano and not a lot of the other stuff, something I would never, ever, ever do now. 
because um, I love the dirt now. Uh, but Tip told me at the beginning of Midnight, Midnight Marauders that he wanted to make sure that it was a gritty or street sounding record. So I didn't he didn't want me to work so hard to clean the shit up. Where does production end and A&R begin, in your opinion? Well, you know, for me, A&R is somebody who is confident enough to put together people that they really think are wonderful and great and give them enough room to do their thing and somehow get a product that the record label feels that they can sell at the same time. The last part is the hard part. You know, a lot of times people put together a team, you make a record and, you know, you get called into the office and, and your A&R person says, we don't have any singles. I don't hear any singles. There's no bullets for our gun, you know, meaning mm. that we can't go out and make a uh, splash with this record because there's no singles. Right. Um, so it's, it's, you know, the best A&R people, like I said, put together really skilled teams and let them do their things. And the records I've been involved with, that's the way it has worked. Um, uh, you know, engineering and production, like I said before, as an engineer, you really got to know what your role is and make sure that you're there to just record and mix what the people intend to do in a way that works really, really well and not say, you know, I'm not sure if that part is right. Or if you play that up an octave, you'll hear the vocals better because the keyboard won't be in the place of the, uh, in the same pitch range as the vocals. That's not my job as an engineer. We're talking about a painting. Yeah, let the painter paint and be there to hold them up and hold the easel and hold the canvas for them, you know. It's enjoyable to know you in the concubines Niggas, take off your coats Ladies, act like gems Sit down, Indian styles You recite these hymns See, lyrically, I'm Mario Andretti on the Momo Ludicrously speedy or infectious with the slow-mo Heard me in the 80s, JV's on the promo Am I never in the quest to get the paper on the caper? But when you look back on that time at a distance Do you have any recollections of negotiations From any record labels that went against The original vision of any of the artists you worked with? Um, as an engineer and a mixer, I was out of those discussions a lot, which is really good. I will tell you though, as a mixer and anybody who has mixed for a living for a while will tell you the same thing. Anytime a label comes to you and says, you know, we really want you to put your spin on it. We want, we want to make it your thing, you know, in the mix. What that really means is the record is not happening. It's not a good record. And somehow they expect you to do something that's going to make it into a wonderful record, which never works. So over the years, I've learned anytime they come to me and say, yeah, we really want you to put your spin on the record. It's like, now I know that I'm being set up for failure. Well, your your spin was a spinner focus, wasn't it, very much back then? You're you know, developing what it is you do, you're learning. What would have been some of the earliest techniques you fostered as a way to maintain your focus and get the best results? Uh, you know, like I said, just doing what I 
thought something should sound like in my ear and going after that. Um, and what I heard in my ears was a product of being in bands, but more than that, but listening to really classic records, listening to Curtis Mayfield, listening to the OJs, listening to the Spinners. Um, but you got to remember, and we talked about this before, when hip hop came in, everybody says, oh yeah, I love that shit too. That's really great that Bob's down with that. But at the same time, you know, when I walk around the streets of New York City and I'd hear shit coming out of the Jeeps, I was like, okay, I got to do Curtis Mayfield, but I got to make it bump like that at the same time. So it was an interesting uh, process of discovery, I guess. Do you think that was a challenge? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, to, to make a record that has really huge bottom and be able to hear all the cool parts, the rest of it at the same time is no small feat. And, and working with samples as well, where, for example, if you have a vocalist and you bring in a really experienced studio keyboard player, the keyboard player is going to play a part that's really cool and works for the song, but stays out of the way of the vocal. When you're dealing with the keyboard part from a sample, it's what it is. And if it's in the way of the vocal, you got to figure out a way sonically to let both things coexist in the same space. Do you credit any specific period for being the hardest time mixing wise? Uh, yeah, at the beginning when I was learning what I was doing from Stets through Tribe and everybody else, you know, yeah. um, the roots were fucking challenging as hell. Um, and in, in a really great way. They're really wonderful people, really broad, intelligent, funny, talented, genius people. But they would try things conceptually that were really difficult to pull off. And it was challenging for me as a mixer at that point to, to pull them off. I think I'd be better at it now, but it's also 25 years down the line. Exactly, exactly. We've been navigating all over the place chronologically throughout this conversation, and I wanted to fast forward to 95, which is a year you said you discovered the true meaning of abuse. Where does... <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was kind of something to make the timeline funny. <laughs> okay, so, so where does that abuse come from, if it comes from anywhere? And would I be mistaken in saying that those issues come from working with Geffen as a label? No, the abuse okay. comes from me working 80-hour weeks. That's, that's what I meant. You know, that was kind of a joke, but I was abusing myself because there were all these really exciting gigs, gigs coming down the line, and I wanted to do as many of them as I could. Um, I have to say, working for Geffen, Wendy Goldstein, the A&R person who's still really big in the business, uh, is a, one of the good ones. You know, when I think about really great A&R people, Wendy is at the top of the list. What was it like working with Tommy Boy? What was your experience in dealing with Tommy Boy? I didn't have that much direct contact with the label, which was cool. I was mostly uh, uh, dealing with the artists themselves and the producers and right. manage, from time to time management. You know, I'd have to deal with the A&R administrators because those are the people who paid me. So I learned the ropes on that one pretty early. You know, that's... The A&R administrator is the person who gets the bills through the system. So when you're a hired gun, that's the first person you want to make friends with. Got you. Now, you mentioned the roots, of course, 
being one of the highlights of your career. What can you tell me about mixing distortion to static off Do You Want More? Which, the story goes, Questlove got the vocals to the song FedEx to him when you were mixing the song, and he turned out to be completely different than the one he originally recorded. Do you have any recollection of how that affected the song specifically? Well, I will tell you in general, and if Amir was here and Tariq were here, I would say the same thing and we'd all laugh about it. Um, they're famous, they're wonderful, and one of their great talents is several fold. Number one, it's the greatest example of creative anarchy I've ever seen in my life. And I mean that in the most positive way, you know, not anarchy like everybody clawing and scraping to get to the top, but anarchy in that no idea was off the table with them. Uh, you know, it, it, what I said about production before, their thing was, there's nothing to say, to say, no, this won't work. It's your responsibility as an artist and a producer to say, let's figure out a way to make this work. Um, so it was challenging in that way. Um, they also were famous for changing direction at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And that's what you just brought up. And, you know, there were times where I lost my patience, you know, now and then, but it was partly because I was real burned out at the time. And there was a, there were a couple of points at which I had to just stop because I wasn't sleeping enough. It's funny how much that title, Fins Fall Apart, kind of correlates with your mental health back then, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, the album drops, you know, at the peak of a coastal beef in hip hop and would end up being a Roots breakout album. Questlove likened the process of recording the album to the White Album by the Beatles. What are your strongest memories recording that project specifically? I did not record that. In fact, I've recorded very little of the Roots. I did mostly mixing. And and I believe on that record, I mixed half of it. What were those experiences like? Well, one thing that I, I remember real well was being in the studio and working for a day and a half on something. And then Amir coming up from Philly and saying, oh, which drums are you using? I'm like, I'm using the drums that were on the tape. He says, no, no, we're using, no, we're going to use different drums on this. <laughs> and you know, after building the whole, like to me, everything on a track fits around the drums. That's just my orientation. So it was, it was, you know, there were times where I kind of was not as smiley as I should have been, but it, a lot of that has to do with me just being so burned out at the time. Credits on things for the part in a track listing is like reading a who's who of the top tier of the neo soul explosion back then. 
With today marking the 25th anniversary of Erica Badu's Baduism, can you maybe talk about your contribution mixing on and on and playing keys on drama? Um, you know, I did my best to realize Erica's vision. She is a true visionary, a true artist. There's not a lot of real artists. You know, I know I, we all know a lot of good singers, but how many true artists do we know who do something in a completely different way than had ever been done before? Yeah. Um, you know, Joni Mitchell is one, Stevie Wonder is one, you know, when you hear their music, it's like, oh, nobody else put together tracks like that. Uh, and Erica is, uh, and was and is a true visionary in that sense. And I will leave it at that. What about working with Common for Like Water for Chocolate, another classic? You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about Common a lot lately and, uh, I, part of it's that uh, I'm reading the book Dilla Time, and Dan Charnas, the guy who wrote it, is a really good friend of mine. I teach with him at NYU. Oh, it's really? A really? By the way, it's a great book. It's a great narrative. Not because there's dirt in there, but because he's a really fucking great writer. It reads like a wonderful novel, but it's all true. Um, but it's not just, you know, so-and-so did this and said this at this time. The narrative has a great dramatic flow to it, so I highly recommend it. Anyway, um, uh, I was talking to somebody about Common recently about why he's so great as an MC, and there's something about, like, one of my concepts of production with, with vocals is that you want the singer or the MC to be so deeply honest and deeply into what they're doing that even if the person doesn't like that style of stuff, you know, it's like if my mother listened to James Brown, she'd say, well, it's not really for me, but he's really into it, mm. you know. And Common has this incredible way of just having the conviction of his thoughts and his heart and his mind and his spirit come through his voice. And he doesn't show off as an MC, you know, like look at my skills or look how clever my rhymes are. Mm. He just goes to, right? I mean, he goes to this place where he believes it so much and it's such a deep sense of truth and openness to his soul that it's kind of undeniable. I completely agree. There's an air of authenticity we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. He's um, one of the greats. But records have to be honest. You know, to me, records have to be honest. One of my kids brought up Billie Eilish the other day. Yeah, that's, she is an incredible artist. And for me, the reason that she's, in, you know, you can pick apart all the component pieces, but she's incredible because she's so deeply, deeply honest without saying, hey, look at me, I'm being honest. She just goes to this place that, that is fearless and lets you weigh inside to this really scary-ass place because it's so deep. Yeah, and the way she really changed the way music is recorded is admirable. Yeah, Phineas um, made a great art out of wrong. Yeah. You know, there's so many things that sonically, if I'm teaching somebody about production and engineering, sonically, I'm like, no, don't do that. That's not a good idea because of this. Much like hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. And explaining to them why it might not be the best idea. They make it work. They make it work. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, Morchiba was like that in a way. Uh, 
I remember hearing some stuff from them where they were using the compressor on the SSL in totally the quote unquote wrong way. And it was doper than shit. I don't, I don't remember the track exactly, but I remember hearing something where the compressor was just like pumping away. And in those days it was something you tried to avoid. And I heard it and I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. been talking about growth throughout this conversation what kind of period was working with the soul querians like for you in terms of growth you know i didn't really work with that crew that much at that point i was doing other things um i also i just and i love these people like my cousins and brothers but i didn't have time to camp out for a year in the studio. I just, you know, I was into just having my professional career, doing a record, mixing a record, moving on to the next thing, and not in a mercenary way. But I had lived that with D on the first album, and I just didn't wanna literally, you know, set up a bedroom in the studio for a year. It was not. I couldn't do that at that point. Do you think you work better in isolation? I actually, I do. <laughs> you know, I'm very happy in the digital world now. And part of it's the COVID thing as well. Of course. But people just send me, you know, for years now, people have been sending me tracks and I send them back. I do, I do a mix. I do a pass on a mix. I send it back to them. I get notes from them. I go down the list of notes. I fix the things the way I think that they intended. I send it back. We maybe do another revision and we're done. And it's cool because I have a little bit more room to just be myself and do the best that I can do without worrying about somebody else sitting in the room wondering if they think I'm doing the right thing or not. We mentioned the Soul Aquarians, of course, and we mentioned a new dealer book, which is out, I believe, in March. It's available, I believe, digitally now, but it comes out physically in March. I've made my pre-order. Do you think you're it... you're up on shit, man? You know exactly what's going on. <laughs> I need to be, man. I need to be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Do you think it was easier to deal with JD as a mixer because of where he tuned samples or drum sounds? Absolutely. No question. I wish I could talk more about it, but you hit the nail on the head. He, JD, besides being making real cool music, had this incredibly immaculate sense of frequencies. And I don't think he was thinking about it consciously. I think he just, when he put stuff together, he was like, oh, good, this is right. Um, but, but his choice of sounds worked really, really well with the way I hear music as a mixer. So it was a match made in heaven. What did you learn from Dilla? It's funny. Jay was a really quiet guy. And now that I'm reading the book, there were things about his personality that I didn't even know were like that, were there. But with people he wasn't that familiar with, he was very, very quiet most of the time. And I guess the fact that it was real quiet with me was a good sign that I was doing what he needed. Mm, mm. You know, I'm sure it'd been all up my ass if I hadn't. That's true. But um, 
uh, yeah, for me, he was a very quiet guy. But again, I, as soon as I heard his stuff and started twisting knobs on the console, I was like, wow, this is exactly the way that I hear things. He did, he did it already. So it was real cool. It was really cool. Well, you mentioned the word quiet. When you look back on these loudness wars in the mid to late 2000s and everyone that was trying to edge each other out on who could be louder back then, you said in the past that you work hard to get things loud but not squished. How do you think you achieved that? What was the process? Well, what you're speaking about was a function of mastering, and I really didn't start mastering until about 10 years ago. So I wasn't involved back then at that point with that with that race um, and now, um, you know, as a mastering guy, um, it's part of my responsibility to make things competitively loud, but it's also part of my responsibility to do that in a way that doesn't defile the music. And you know what I mean? When you, when you, in the process of mastering, when you limit something without skill, it just starts getting distorted and real crappy and nasty and edgy and harsh and fatiguing to listen to sounding. Mm. Uh, and I prefer to do it. So you listen to the mix and you go, God, this beautiful mix. And if you listen to the master and, and make them the same volume, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be infringing on the beauty of that mix that much. Right. It's hard, man. It's really, really hard. Have you ever had to deal with many artists who have taken preference for the first demo of a son over any subsequent mix? Absolutely, man. Um, anytime, you know, it's kind of like we want you to put your spin on it. The dangers, the sirens go off when I hear that. When I hear we really love the demo, we just want it better. <laughs> that's a no-win situation. And I've actually, more than a number of times, I've been hired by a record label and a band will have done an independent release and it's really cool sounding, all fucked up and really cool. And, you know, because it's all fucked up, it's really cool. And they say, well, we want it, but it's, it doesn't sound like a record. We just need it better, but we need it like this. It never, ever, ever works. It's, not, it's never the same thing twice. And now when someone says, to the, says that to me, uh, I say, well, listen, you love what you have, but it just doesn't sound quite right for you they go yeah we really love it it just doesn't sound like a record and i'm like let me master it don't have me mix it save your save your money top top three common recording mistakes you see when you get the audio to mix uh lousy mic technique people not knowing how far or how close to be from the microphone and moving around a lot during different takes you know they go out for a break they come back, they stand in a completely different place on the mic, so the vocal doesn't sound the same. Um, recording too hot, meaning putting too much level into the digital system, so it's clipped and, you know, to most people, you say distorted, and it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> but not that bad. So those two things are, oh, and shitty mic preamps. Like people don't understand a mic preamp is something that takes a level coming out of the microphone puts out a very quiet signal. This is for people who don't do this. And the mic preamp takes that very quiet signal and brings it up to a level that the rest of the studio can deal with. And everybody thinks that the microphone is the most important part of the chain. 
most engineers will say the same thing that having a really good mic pre is is uh, is more important. Um, and again, that's the thing that turns the microphone up to a level that the rest of the studio system can deal with. And bad ones uh, make an, a vocal sound like you're listening through a paper tube, and good ones make a vocal sound like big and full and robust and really beautiful to listen to. When you think about your work, how do you think your contributions have encouraged people to engage in the discourse of mixing, understanding engineering and producing new solutions? I can't give myself that much credit, man. Um, you know, I teach at NYU at the Clive Davis Institute, and it was very, very difficult. It took me a number of years to get used to the fact that people wanted me to say, do it like this because it works better. So I have a hard time doing that. But I, you know, I also kind of after a couple of years of teaching realized that that's what people want from me. Um, so I, I say, listen, this is just the way I do things. And sometimes it works out really well. And ultimately, you will take what you want from this and you'll leave the stuff that doesn't work so well for you. But just know that this is not the only nor quote unquote, the best way to do it. This is the way I do it. And this is why I do it this way. And it works out pretty well most of the time. So that's about as far as I can go with that. Bob Power, I want to thank you for redefining the way we hear music and creating some of my favorite albums growing up. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about your career on this episode. Likewise, Luke. It's, it's really nice to talk to you, man. I appreciate the time. Me. My mother gave birth, but she really never had me. Left to the hood to play daddy. Raised my niggas name, Butch screwed the baby. We'll wait so they wait they status on the streets, license place to say they motto. This is Chicago in the heyday. Similar to good.
I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.